how to make an offer so good that people feel stupid to say no. I want everyone to say yes. So what would I have to say to get everyone to say yes? I don't want them to be aroused by what I'm saying. I want them to be ravenous for the thing that I'm selling. I tend to try and make the offer so good I'm scared. And that's usually when I know it's right. You have to give more in order to get more. It's backwards. People think it's all about asking. It's all about giving. You have to say who you're not serving in order to find who you are going to serve. The strategy is about saying what we're not going to do rather than what we are going to do. We did $17 million in profit as a 28-year-old. We stand today. The Business Method with a shout The Business Method. The Business Method Podcast. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, people of all ages, I'm your host, Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Business Method Podcast, a podcast featuring over 500 episodes of entrepreneurs and high-performance experts dissecting their different methods, tools, and strategies so we can apply them to our businesses and lives. We've been fortunate enough to interview some of the leading experts in business and performance today. The billionaire CEO of Priceline, Jeff Hoffman, the CEO of Chipotle, Monty Moran, world's top big wave surfer, Laird Hamilton, the first black woman to build a billion dollar company, Janet Halroyd, world's top investment expert, Jim Rogers, and the list goes on and on. All of these guests you can find on the podcast backlog using Apple, Spotify, YouTube, Google, and any podcast app you prefer. Also, you guys, have you started listening to our micro high performance episodes yet? We've taken the most powerful tips and tricks from over 400 interviews that our guests have shared on how to optimize their own personal performance, and we've made them into digestible micro-podcast episodes that are just 2 to 10 minutes long. We publish these on Monday and Friday each week, and those episodes are labeled as HP number 123456 and so on. Those episodes are live now, and they're designed for you to consume some quick, high-quality content while you only have a few minutes to spare. So be sure to subscribe to the Business Method podcast on your favorite app so you can get those delivered as soon as they're live. And now, let's hop into today's episode. The Business Method. Hey listeners, real quick before we get started, I wanted to tell you about our trips and adventures for entrepreneurs. We have live events in different locations around the world, luxury trips to the Caribbean, adventurous trips to knock off your bucket list, and of course some private business events as well. If you're an entrepreneur, we'd love to have you join us. Make sure to subscribe to our newsletter at thebusinessmethod.com to stay updated. And for those established entrepreneurs out there that want to be involved in a community that is curated specifically for seasoned business minds, then we have a group for you. Inside this group, we have private live events in different locations around the world specifically for our members. We get those members in a place where they can connect, collaborate, and grow their companies faster just by being around one another. We also organize private podcast viewings and Q&A sessions with some of the world's top entrepreneurs like Jim Rogers, Alex Hermosi, the CEO of Chipotle, the marketing mind behind GoPro. And as a member of our group, you'll get to hop on calls with our podcast guests regularly to ask them any questions you want. And the last benefit is access to private world-class masterminds that are specifically curated for whatever challenges you're going through at the time. Our purpose with this private community is to help you expand your network, connect with some of the brightest minds in business today, and help one another overcome business challenges faster. You can learn more about our community at thebusinessmethod.com. Remember, subscribe to stay updated. And now, let's hop into today's show. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. 
Today on the Business Method Podcast, we have the author of the recently successful and trending book for entrepreneurs, $100 million offers, and his name is Alex Hermosi. Alex took home more in a year than the CEOs of McDonald's, Ikea, Ford, Motorola, and Yahoo combined as a kid in his 20s using the $100 million offer method. In 18 months of business, Alex went from 550000 to $28 million. In the previous three years, Alex has taken home $1.2 million in profit every single month. Not year, you guys, month. Alex didn't start out this way. He started out as a small gym owner struggling in the early days with competition, forcing him to sleep on the floor of his own gym because he was unable to afford rent anywhere else. Eventually, Alex started to learn and implement systems in his gym to add $10,000 a month to his revenue. And over time, he became the owner of six gyms while everyone else was going out of business. Once other gym owners saw Alex's success, they started asking him how he did it. He quickly recognized an opportunity to help existing gym owners by sharing everything he learned. This company called Gym Launch was born in 2017 and it didn't take long for that business to take off. Alex and his wife started out traveling from gym to gym, helping owners build more sustainable businesses. Gym Launch continued to grow to over $24 million per year with over 40 employees servicing thousands of gyms and making over 37 gym owners millionaires using his consulting and methodology. Alex reinvested everything into another business that would further support gym owners, thus Prestige Prestige Labs was launched in 2019. Prestige Labs started out as a supplement company, but quickly grew into another product line. In 2019, they launched Done For You Meals. Alex's vision was to give gym owners the tools not only to get their clients better results, but also make the gym owners more money through commission. Unlike everyone else, Alex didn't have great funnels, great ads, or a wealthy niche. In fact, he didn't even send emails until he'd crossed $50 million in sales. What's his superpower? Alex creates offers so damn good that people felt stupid for saying no. Today, Alex has generated over $120 million across four different industries, service, e-com, software, and brick and mortar. And we're going to talk to Alex about creating the best offer for your business that you could possibly have so you can charge a lot more than you currently are. You can make products so good that prospects find a way to pay you and enhance your offer so much prospects buy without hesitating. He's on the podcast today. Alex, welcome to the show, man. How are you? Good. Thank you for having me. It's a, it's a very nice introduction. Yeah. <laughs> I hope I can live up to it. <laughs> I, I I think, I hope you can too. No, I think you really can. Some Quite often we get people on the podcast and I do a really good intro for them and they're like, man, Chris, I need to bring you along so you can open up for me when I when I speak <laughs> do speaking engagements. And um, yeah, but welcome to the show, man. I, I just got done with your book, $100 million offers. Fantastic book. Read it in a weekend, so anybody that that likes a good, quick, in-depth read, check it out. And it's in layman terms. It's third grade reading level, so thank you for very much for that. And it's sketched out really simply so we can all figure it out and we can apply it to our businesses. And I actually went through and kind of created an offer of myself as we do in the book. It's an exercise. So, yeah, I, I love the book, and we've got an audience here. We've got great people to chat with, and I think, like, the, the best point to start is let's talk about your background where did you get your start at i had so i mean i 
I went to Vanderbilt, um, graduated in three years, uh, magna cum laude. The only reason I bring that up is because I feel like a lot of entrepreneurs who actually did okay in school um, somehow feel like ostracized by the entrepreneurs who didn't do well in school. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. To go to college <laughs> or not to go to college sort of thing. Yeah, or like, yeah. you know what I mean? And I, I'm actually very against going to college um, nowadays if you want to be an entrepreneur. But uh, I think there's like, you can also be good at school and become an entrepreneur as well. And I feel like it's, yeah. it's, been, it's, it's been so, the pendulum swung so far the other way that it's like, if school didn't fail you, then you can't be an entrepreneur. Right. Um, and so I don't know if that's necessarily true. Um, but yeah, I did that. And then I became a management consultant. Um, I was between that and investment banking. And I thought management consulting sounded cooler. Um, and I, it, it might still be cool. I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> but the two years that I did was, was not ideal for me. I didn't really enjoy it that much. Um, and it was uh, only in facing my own desire to stop living um <laughs> that i was like you know i think there are other things i could do that would not make me want to feel this way um or would at least give me some chance of not feeling this way as much mm -hmm. and so um i quit my job and then i emailed 40 gym owners because i knew i liked fitness um one guy got back to me and then uh, i drove my car 36 hours from where i was to where he was and i sold everything i had um, before leaving and so that was what uh, kind of got me into the gym industry. And that was, uh, that was the first business that I had was, um, was the gym. And so, uh, from there, I, you know, really struggled to figure out how to sell stuff. Um, I was, it was hard for me to even give away memberships. And I was like, I got to figure something else out. Cause this is way too hard. And so, um, I thought about, you know, and this was honestly a combination of me talking to lots of gym owners. And luckily I didn't have, um, any friends or a girlfriend or a wife or a dog. I had nothing. And I didn't know anybody in the area because I moved across the country. And so as a result, I had a lot of time. And so yes. with that, I used every hour I could to drive and visit gyms and visit other gym owners and learn what they were doing. And, you know, piece by piece, I was able to assemble a better business. Um, you know, I tried the stuff, the stuff that was good. I used stuff that didn't, didn't work for me or whatever I, I, I cast out and over time, we were able to, to grow the business into an actual business. I think by month nine, I had the whole gym outsourced. Um, and then every six months after that, I opened a new location off cash flow, And that was kind of what, what started to create the reputation for me um, was, was opening each gym at full capacity on day one, which is actually pretty interesting. I can explain how I did that. But, um, and that was kind of what gave me some notoriety. And, um, but I, I, I invested every dollar back that I was making into new locations. And then I ended up, uh, I think in the book, I, I allude to it, I ended up losing all the money from selling my gyms. Um, shortly thereafter. So I basically had four years of my life that almost just disappeared within a matter of like 30 days, um, which was awesome. Highly recommend um, for, for interpersonal growth. Um, but what I was stuck with or left with <clears throat> were the skills and the beliefs and the character traits. Right. And so I think that those are the, those are the things that we collect as entrepreneurs far more than the assets we accumulate. Um, and I think ultimately that was why the next thing that I did was so successful. And then, you know, everything after that has been pretty good. How old were you at the time when you started that first gym? 23. Okay. And you you said you sold some of the gyms and then lost all of that. What what was that like for you um, when you sold the gyms and then lost all of that? I know pretty much all entrepreneurs that reach a decent level of success lose a shit ton of money, right? It's, <laughs> it's just kind of like you're going to have to lose a lot of money sometime in your life if you're going to be an entrepreneur, right? So, so as a young guy, like what, what was it like for you? And if you want to share, like how much money was it? Oh, I mean, it wasn't a ton. I think it was like, it was like a hundred grand, maybe 150 grand, but it was everything. I had. That's a lot for somebody in their mid twenties, right? Yeah. yeah. 
Um, and so it was, yeah, it was just, it was, it was, I mean, it was miserable. Um, but I think what it was so, it was, I don't know how I can, if I can describe this the right way, but it was, it was so painful because it was like the only thing that I felt like I had to show for it, mm-hmm. that it forced me to think differently about what I had to show for it. And so in thinking differently to cope with the pain, I think I made better realizations about what I actually had to show for it, which is all the skills that I had. And I think that that is, if there's anything that I can pass to entrepreneurs, it's like the entrepreneurial journey is far more about the, the character traits, the skills and beliefs that we collect along the way yeah. than it is about the actual business that we work on. And I, I have a saying that I like a lot, which is like the work works on you more than you work on it. Um, and I think that that is very true. And if we, if we see it that way, then it means the work itself is the, is the result. Um, and then it, it releases us from the outcome-based thinking that ends up destroying our businesses because it forces us to think longer um, because we already have achieved the outcome by doing the work. Mm-hmm. I love how you put that, that. And it's so true too, because like once in my life, I was donating plasma and eating cans of corn and green beans for dinner. And I was like, you know, one day I'm still going to help people and I'm going to keep doing this entrepreneur thing, even though it's, it's, it's not easy. So that takes us to, you had the one gym, sold it, lost a bunch of money. And then, um, <laughs> I had six gyms. You had six, sold all six of them and then lost a bunch of money. Right. Yes. What, and then in that money, where did that go? What were you, were you reinvesting into other business ideas? Yeah. yeah. So that was part of how I lost it. So I, I also fire sold that. So this, all of these kind of, so people like to tell linear stories, but they were much more Right. mushy. You know I mean, okay. like that thing started and ended as all entrepreneurs at the same time. And so, um, you know, my gym launch started in April of 2016, um, is when I founded the business. Um, and then I spent that year flying around and launching gyms, right. right. Actually doing gym rounds, but I still owned my gyms at that point. Okay. And so I, you know, so that it's, it's a little more, a little more muddled. Right. Okay. Um, and then at the same time I had, when I started gym launch, I, I, that, I think the month before I started it, I joined um, Russell Brunson's inner circle. It was like five years ago. Yeah. And I got up and I was like, Hey, this is how I fill gyms. This is how uh, this, my plan to get from six locations to 10 locations. I already have the locations picked out and I wanted to be like America's gym. So I owned United fitness and that was kind of the plan. And so um, the biggest gift that he gave me, and I've, I've said this many times um, is that he shifted my perspective and he said, um, Alex, I think you're really good at this. I think you, you have a level 10 skill set and a level two opportunity. And um, that hit me really hard, but I was like, huh. He's like, I don't think you should be running gyms. I think you should be teaching people how to do what you do. And so um, that was kind of the first kind of pivot. And that was what took me from running the six and then moving to selling them all within the next you know, six months or so. Um, Got it. And so that obviously was really hard for me because it was everything that I had built at that point. And it was completely shifting my vision for what I wanted my life to look like. Um, but I'm a big believer that you know, if you pay someone for mentorship, if I do not listen, then I might as well earn the money. Uh, yeah. And so you're paying someone for advice and you don't take the advice. It's not a good, a good use. I mean, that being said, take with an, you know, a grain of salt, et cetera. But I think what he said made sense to me. And so um, I took the, I took the plunge. So you said too, you were so busy, like you and your wife were so busy, I think girlfriend or fiance at the time flying around nonstop that, that you, you're almost forced to, to start, you know, saying here, you do it on your own. I'll teach you. And, and figure it out. Right. Like and yep. that, that happens to a lot of us because we were running these businesses, they turn into jobs for us. And then it's just to the point of frustration where we're like, we've have to hire somebody or we have to tell somebody to do it on your own. I'm still going to charge you, but I'll, I'll walk you through it. 
but I can't be there in person sort of deal. I can't hold your hand anymore the way that you were. We, um, it's that, that's a, that's a much cleaner, uh, version of, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. What ended up happening was, um, we were launching gyms for the, honestly, the dates are muddled for me. I think the first one was like May of 16. I think the last one was March of more April, maybe it was April of 17. So it was about a year ish. Um, but it felt like longer cause it took me before I did the first gym, I had to like find the first gyms and then set the dates. And so it's like, and then I had, was dealing with stuff afterwards. So it felt more like 18 months, but, um, we, we were launching the gyms and there was a week where two of the six or two of the seven gyms or something that we had launched that month, the gym owners had gotten up on like their stools in the middle of the classes that we had just packed, um, and just told everyone to just refund and go home. And so the issue was I was the one who controlled the processing. So I processed sales that we had generated for those facilities. And so I got $150,000 in refunds in about a week between mm -hmm. two facilities. And so that was about all of the profit I had at that point, because I had just started again at zero, like not that long ago, um, after losing everything the first time. So this is really just me losing everything again. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so I was like, you know what? I'm, I think I'm done with the gym industry. Like it's been a ride. I was just like emotionally tired of it. And so we were really good at selling weight loss, obviously. And so Layla, who was my girlfriend at the time, she had a little, a little weight loss business, like coaching online. I said, how about I just direct all my attention to this? Let's see if we can scale it and just go direct to consumer. And so within about 14 days, we were doing a thousand bucks a day selling digital products. Uh, 14 days. Yeah. Wow. I mean, Amazing what happens when your ass is against the wall and you need to do shit. True. Um, so it started working. So I was like, okay, cool. I'll take the eight sales guys that we got on the road. We'll bring each of them in. We can do a thousand a day each. We'll do 8,000 a day. We'll do 240 a month. This could work. You know what I mean? Like we can do this. And so that was the plan. And so um, I had eight gyms that were supposed to launch the next month. So eight guys who fly out and we do the turnarounds on all of them. It wasn't just Layla and I, we scaled the team up. Um, and so when we were launching, uh, I called those gyms up and said, hey, you know, um, we're not going to be doing this. Right. And the first guy was like, dude, I need this. I just mortgaged my house again. Like I'm maxed on my credit cards. Like I need this to work. Yeah. Um, yeah. and I was just like, you know, I'm not, I'm not coming out. I'm sorry. And, um, he's like, please help me some way. And so that was when I was like, well, you know what, I'll, I'll show you what I'm doing, but I'm not going to fly out there to save your ass. If you can't sell, I'll show you how to do it. And he was like, okay, that's fine. That's fair. Uh, how much? And I picked the highest number I could think of at the time. Cause I didn't want to do it. And so this was, I ended up unlocking high ticket pricing by accident because I didn't want to do it. And right. so at the time, just to give you perspective, the highest price I could think of at the time was $6,000. And so okay. I said, for six grand, uh, I'll, uh, I'll show you how to do it. And he was like, okay. And I was like, I just like, I remember like looking at the phone and I, like, <laughs> and, and I was like, holy cow. And then I, and I, so then I called the next gym that I was supposed to, to, to get rid of, you know, like to not launch. Mm -hmm. um, and I had the same conversation. He was like, how much? And I was like, eight grand. And he was like, okay. And I was like, holy shit. And the next call, same thing. I was like 10 grand. He was like, holy, you know, and he said, uh -huh. yes. And I'm like, oh my God. And the next call I did was 12 grand. And he was like, yeah. And I was like, this is unbelievable. And so we made, um, I ended up making 60 grand that day. Wow. Um, and I remember looking at Layla and I was like, I think we're still in the gym business. I was like, I think we're just doing it wrong. And so over the next two days, I didn't sleep. And I made everything that, that I, that was missing from my, cause I already had a training for the gym owners for after we left on how to manage the clients and how to upsell them, all that kind of stuff. And then I, I had the sales training for my team on how to sell the membership because I had them, I, they needed to be able to sell uh, because I was pumping real money at them and like spending hotel, airfare, rental car, food, right. uh, ad spend commissions every day. I was spending 3,300 a day, as you know, in the book. 
And so I needed them to be successful. So the sales training is still one of the core sales trainings. It's like the training that I had for those guys was a good sales training because um, it worked. And so um, anywho, uh, I had to just create the other aspect of it, which is like how to generate the demand, what the ads look like, how to market it, et cetera. And so um, each of those gyms made $30,000 on average in their first 30 days. Um, nice. That I pulled that to. And then that's when it just blew up. And then, yeah. you know, we had more demand than we knew what to do with. Um, I called the other 30 something gyms that we had launched over the last year. And I was like, Hey, remember that thing I did where I filled your gym up? I was like, you want me to show you how I did it? And they were like, okay. And so I just resold all those the next month. And then, and then just the, the word of mouth was huge. And I think yeah. it's wildly underestimated. Um, professor Bergman, who's the MBA from Stanford, uh, Bergman trap, um, talks about it's more dangerous to not know why you are successful than to fail and know why you failed. And, um, I think what, I think being the subject of a lot of uh, scrutiny, not scrutiny, um, uh, interest, a lot of people have, have have cast their opinions about why we were successful. And I think what is wildly undervalued um, is that our product was exceptional. Mm-hmm. And I think that is what people do not understand in the, the internet space as a whole, if you can call it a space, um, is that there is an overemphasis on promotion and an underemphasis on product. Right. And if you have a good product, the amount that you get back from your promotions are significantly higher. And what I find ironic is that the book that I wrote is not a marketing book. It's a product book. Mm. Um, it is marketers who are reading it, <laughs> right? The book is yeah. on product. It doesn't, talk about, it doesn't talk about how to get leads. It doesn't talk about messaging. It doesn't talk yeah. about copy. It doesn't talk yeah. about headlines. It literally talks about how to make a product. Yeah. But no, but there are no product books in the marketing space. And so it's like, for a lot of people, it's like this brand new, it's like, so product is a thing, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> It's a marketing um, title, like, right? That catches them and, and gets them in. And so that's the, and so um, that is what is still to this day. And as, as I've continued to weather and, and age as an entrepreneur, uh, the business that we look for now to invest in as a part of acquisition.com are companies that have superior value propositions. Like how good is the thing? If the thing is good, um, then it's very easy for me to, to build all the other stuff around it. Was that the same timeline when, when you went from 550K to, to 28 million? Or was that the, the, the year following that? So well, timeline would be, did, um, 2018, we did 28 million and $17 million in profit as a 28 year old. And then the next year we did 37 million. I think we did 13 and a half million in profit. That was when I started the supplement company. So I invested in all the inventory, all that kind of stuff. I also made one really massive pricing mistake, which cost me about $4 million, um, which sucked which I can happy to talk about if you want. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and then um, 2020, uh, we started we, at the end of 19, in the beginning of 2020, we started Allen, which is our software company. We actually, um, yeah, started the software company um, and uh, scaled that to just under 2 million a month within the first six months. And then, um, and then in the middle of kind of 2020 is when we started acquisition.com. Yeah. Um, and that was, that was the, house when we started it. Now we have um, three companies outside of the companies that I own um, explicitly that are in that portfolio. Hey, real quick to the listeners out there, I want to ask you something. What are you doing to optimize your day-to-day performance and productivity levels? You know, guys, we talk about this a lot on the podcast, and we're always trying to learn more and more about how each and every one of us can optimize our performance. The reason why I'm asking you is because today our show is sponsored by the good folks at Seize. 
Seize is a mental wellness company that aims to empower entrepreneurs and high performers with supplements to enhance their productivity and minimize their pain points. Flow is their flagship product, which is a ready-to-drink powder that comes in a 30-day stick pack that works as an energy and focus enhancer. Flow was created to improve your focus, increase your alertness, enhance your creativity so you can tackle the prime tasks of the day while staying in a creative flow state. On top of that, there are no energy crashes with their product flow, which means an improved mood and enthusiastic approach to business. These benefits are a supreme advantage for entrepreneurs and high performers to sustain their performance on a regular basis. Flow is an instant and sustained boost. It can be a replacement or enhancement for coffee, so you no longer require many cups per day to combat lethargy and the sluggish part of the day just to stay on top of things. Flow will give you what you need to get your brain cells firing so you can optimize your work results, hit your goals, have more time doing what you love, and spending time with loved ones so you can seize each and every day day. When you sign up for Seize's VIP list, you get first access and can receive 50% off the pre-launch offer, you guys. That is half off during this pre-launch offer. Just head over to Seize.life forward slash the business method. That's Seize, S-I-I-Z, Seize.life forward slash the business method to get your discount. We'll put all the links in the show notes, you guys. And now let's hop back into the interview. Before we move on, because I want to start to dissect the book, but I want to ask you, and I talk, I ask a lot of entrepreneurs this, but it's fascinating to see so much rapid growth in somebody's timeline, because I think mindset wise, so many of so many people out there just get stuck at like the six figure mindset or maybe half a million mindset or seven figures or, 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 you know, even eight figures. And you were almost forced to kind of blow that mindset out just by circumstances, but what do you think are some of the best things that you did throughout your timeline to help you shift your mindset rapidly and then accept that, oh, I'm an eight-figure entrepreneur right now. I'm a nine-figure entrepreneur right now. Any things that happened or any tidbits or, or tips you got from anybody or courses or mentors or anything that really yeah. kind of helped you through that? So interestingly, like I've never, and it was just funny you said that I've never identified as a quote, eight figure entrepreneur or a ninth. Like I've never said those words like in right. my entire life. Right. I've never even, um, and so that just figured <laughs> at least address that. Um, but I'm actually a big believer in the theory of constraint. And so it's, I think what appears quick to the outside fast from the outside feels like clarity from the inside. Right. And so when you're inside of a business, it's, are we clear on the one thing we need to be focused on right now? What feels what, what feels fast on the inside is slow on the outside. It feels like everything's so frenetic and I have all these things I have to do. And if you have all these things you have to do, it means you're not prioritizing. Mm-hmm. And I think that ultimately, like all of us are all given more or less the same resources. We're our, our, most people here in a developed country, most people have access to the internet. Um, we have access to the same information. We have access to the same amount of time. And so why is it that some people are able to outperform others? And it's because of how they prioritize their time and um, or rather the actions that they do. And so... When I look back on 99% of the decisions that I've made in the last year, almost none of them mattered. Um, but the 1% of decisions that did matter are the ones that I had a lot of leverage on. And so um, I think you had a, the original question was how, how do you break that mindset of like speed, et cetera? Um, I think I focus not on what the outcome is, but is what is the constraint that is stopping us from growing right now? And so I think if we ask better questions, we'll get better answers. And most people don't even ask the question, which is, um, if I'm at $100,000 a year, what is stopping me from being at a million dollars a year? What is stopping me from being at $10 million a year? 
And um, I do like Grant Cardone's concept of the whole 10X thing. And I think I like it because it forces us to ask better questions. If you say, how do I double? You're going to get doubling answers. If you say, how do I 10X? The answers are different because you can't do twice as much. You can't, sorry, you can't do 10 times as much as what you're doing. You have to think differently. And so I think that when we ask those types of questions, then we'll be able to answer them and have those better answers and then execute on them. And I think that the actual drive though, which is different than what you're asking, but I think still equally important is that for me, um, I was just incredibly insecure um, and really wanted to be untouchable from all angles, mostly just to protect myself because I think I'm soft on the inside. And so I try to portray as much unbeatableness as I possibly can, mostly so people just leave me alone. Mm, interesting. So for me, that pain is what drove me. Right. Um, I think that I think people are driven proportional to their perceived pain, irrelevant from what actually occurred in whatever created who they are. I think everybody's had quote uh, you know difficult times in their lives. Most people have difficult childhoods, and that's because you're a child in the real world with no coping mechanisms. So of course it's hard for you. Right. Um, but I think we all experience that. And then the question is to what depth did we experience that pain? And then what did we use that pain for? Or did that pain use us? Have you targeted what, what that pain is for you exactly? And oh yeah, for me, a hundred percent, it was a proof of my father that I didn't think I was going to. And as you've gone through this journey, have you learned to accept that, that pain more or come to terms with it? I think that over, over my, so I had to, I had to go from pain to numb. Um, and then from numb to selectively turning on emotions again. Uh, um, and that was probably a, a four ish year process. No, yeah. that's not true. It was probably more like an eight year process. Sorry, I'm thinking about from gym launch. So from the original me starting my gyms until maybe like a year or two ago, um, it was, it was rage that, that built the gyms and it was fear that built gym launch. Um, and I would say that, um, ego probably built the software company. And then I think acquisition.com finally um, is coming from a place of abundance. And I'll define abundance because I think people throw the word out a lot. Right. But abundance is, as I define it, you need nothing. It's not about how much you have. It's about how little you need. And so I think that you can be abundant because by definition, if you need nothing, then everything is in excess, which allows you to give because I don't need anything in return. Yeah. And sometimes it takes all that trial and error and fear and rage to get to a place of abundance, right? To really know how to tap into it and appreciate it. Mind you, I made millions of dollars off fear and pain. So like, I'm not saying that it is not an effective means of motivation. And I think another interesting thing is that people don't know the difference between motivation and fear. Mm -hmm. And what happens that's interesting at some point, some of you hopefully will experience this is that when fear disappears, motivation actually feels different. And I don't think I'd ever felt motivated until maybe recently um, because it was still fear that drove me. So like that, that, that thing inside of you, that's like, oh, I got to start working. That's usually fear, not motivation. Right. It's, uh, it's fear of some sort of failure or insecurity or judgment or whatever your thing is. So how do you know, like if you're feeling uh, fear and not motivated, do you have a, do you have something you do to switch? Like you wake up in the morning, you're feeling fear. You've got to do this, 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 this. Is there something you do that can help you switch on a regular basis? I don't feel, I don't feel fear nearly as frequently. Now that could be because I have put real world totems in place that kind of quell those fears and insecurities. Mm -hmm. So it's like, so like I'm just, just being real for a second, right? It's like, I look the way I look, right? I'm very wealthy. I'm young. 
I have a, an attractive wife um, whom I enjoy. And so I check off all of the boxes that I think that are important for perception. And I think that I could stand here and say, ah, oh, it's because I'm so secure now. Or I just quell the insecurities with changing the environment in which I live so that I can just continue to function and have real evidence to contract or contradict the fears or insecurities that I speak to myself in my head. Mm, well put. All right. I love this, but we've got to dissect the book. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about offers. We got some listeners that want to talk about offers. Um, so your book, you have three or four main sections, pricing, value, creating, uh, your value, creating your offer, enhancing mm -hmm. your off offer and an execution and yep. starting off the thing that pulls people in from the book, you end up talking about product, but you you start talking about how to make an offer so good that people feel stupid to say no. And me personally, I've experienced this a handful of times when the offer was so good, just people walk away just feeling really, you know, silly for not buying it right now. And I think that's what we're all trying to get at. But some of us aren't that great at creating offers. And you call that a grand slam offer. And, mm -hmm. and I love this part in the book, Alex. I actually wrote it down while I was reading it. But you said, no offer, no business, no life. Bad offer, negative profit, no business, miserable life. Decent offer, no profit, stagnating business, stagnating life. Good offer, some product, okay business, okay life. Grand slam offer, uh, fantastic profit, insane business, and freedom. And it's never been like cut out like that for me before. And I've been an entrepreneur for over a decade, right? And I've never seen offers laid out um, in that description. So it was really eye-opening eye for me. So so maybe if we can um, just dive into exactly what a Grand Slam offer is and how some of how the people out there can really start to form their own in a better way. So I think it's useful from a, from a thought perspective to, to show extremes um, and then kind of walk backwards from there. Mm -hmm. So if I wanted to, so let's, if we wanted to start with the query, um, I want everyone to say yes, right? So what would I have to say to get everyone to say yes? And so let's say I was selling a make money off, right? Which fundamentally anybody who's B2B is selling a make money, right? right? It's just down and said differently, but more or less that's what it is. And so if I were to say, cool, um, I guarantee you that you will make twice as much money as you do now um, in 30 days, or I will pay you all of the money that you paid me plus twice as much back, right? And you don't have to do anything besides buy today. Um, most people would say yes to that, right? right? And so the question is, if we if that's the offer someone to say yes to, is there, and then the other offer is, pay me right now, I give you no promises, there's nothing, you might experience an outcome, you might not, right? right. And you're going to have to do a lot of work, and it's going to be really painful for you. If that's the other extreme, <coughs> is there a point in between here and here that's closer to this side that we can um, do that will get people to buy and that we can fulfill? And so I think that that's kind of the thought experiment is like, I would start here and then just walk back as few steps as I can until I find something that I feel like I can fill on that I know most people will say yes to. Mm -hmm. And so the components of each of those things is what's kind of outlined in the book. And so um, the first section of the book is around pricing because I think a lot of times most entrepreneurs, like there's four major marketplace, I don't talk about this in the book, but there's four marketplaces that exist within, within like pricing strategy. You've got at the top, you have luxury, then you have premium, mm -hmm. then you have low cost, and then you have ultra low cost. Ultra low cost is like third world country, like 99 cent book that I have, ultra right. low cost, right? right. Uh, low cost is Walmart, is Amazon, is Target, right? 
uh, premium is uh, BMW, Mercedes, right? Audi, those are premium. Luxury is Rolls Royce. Right. And so the, I mean, I probably should have just done all car examples there, but it like the, the, the lowest one would be like a, cars they don't even sell here in America and only sell for like under $4,000 in India. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that would like, they don't even exist here. And then we only have like the Pinto or whatever, you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, yeah. And, and then you Toyota and whatever. Right. And so the idea is that it's not that I want to, I want to just color this for a second. The reason I give the broad advice of raising prices is that for most businesses, they're not going to win unless they're a more complex entrepreneur that's funded, et cetera, right? Which most of us are not, um, with some sort of ultra low cost strategy for so they can acquire market share, et cetera. Most mm -hmm. people, normal service to a normal avatar. And if that is you, then you don't occupy any of the four spaces. And if you're selling a normal product to a normal avatar, you're probably not intentioning to create a luxury business, which is one where the more someone pays, the more status they have, which you may think that because you are expensive, you are luxury, but you are not, mm. right? So it's clear, like demand should go up when you increase the price. And that's not the case for most people. Mm. And so the idea is if you're in the normal, then you need to decide whether you're going to be low cost, whether you're going to be Walmart, or you're going to be premium, like you're going to be BMW, right? That's the decision most businesses need to make. Okay. And most of them try and do something a little bit more for a little bit less. And they find themselves in the middle, which a consumer does not understand. And so we have to decide what we're going to be. And I think that if you're going to be the low cost leader, there can only be one or two per marketplace. And so unless you have a very strong operational background and you've dedicated all of your effort to how can we optimize costs and pass on those savings to the customer so we can give the, the highest uh, value per dollar, then the only kind of reasonable alternative besides that is to become a premium leader. And so I don't describe that in the book, but that is the reasoning behind the, the broad, the broad brushstroke recommendation of just becoming a premium um, leader, which means you have to increase your price. And the benefits of increasing the price are that you're going to attract more qualified customers. And when you attract more qualified customers, your product, even if you don't change it, will increase in its quality. If I attract uh, people who are doing a million dollars a year and I try and help them go from 1 million to 2 million, it's significantly easier than helping someone go from zero to $10,000 a month. Right. Right. Because someone already has all these other things. And so I might have the exact same product. Let's say it's how to run Facebook ads, which I think is the most commoditized thing in the world, but you get the idea, mm -hmm. right? So if I have how to run Facebook ads and I'm trying to get someone to go from zero to $10,000 a month, it's much harder. And my product will not do nearly as well or provide nearly the value as it might to somebody who's doing a million dollars and they get one thing from it and it boosts them by 25%, which is 250,000. So for them, I can in a real way provide more value. And I, my product was more valuable because of the prospect that I'm choosing to sell to. And so that was kind of the idea behind the, the pricing component of this. And then when we have more pricing power, we can spend more in the acquisition, we can spend more in the fulfillment and then fulfill the promises that we're making. And then actually feel like we're, we're, we're making the impact that many of us want to have. When the reverse of that is you have less profit left over, you have to cut down on your expenses, you provide less value, and then in so doing, you lose conviction, then ultimately burn out. Mm. So you have one quote in the book, Alex, and it applies to this, where you say, there's absolutely no benefit of being the second cheapest service or product in that industry or in that niche, but there's a ton of benefit of being the most expensive. And I guess that would re regard both premium and luxury areas of price range yeah. cool and that's where you decided you wanted to be using that method basically you decided you wanted to be the most expensive company out there that helps gyms 
launch your businesses. Makes sense. Yeah, so much so that people have to say, they have to pause and think, wow, this is so much more expensive than everything else I've seen. Yeah. Something different must be going on here. And in so doing, you can use price even as a, as a primary signal to a prospect that you are different. Right. Like price in and itself can be a differentiator, even in the opposite direction. Right. That makes sense. Uh, but then you still have to deliver on the backside of it or you'll lose business eventually. Like that's the yeah. only way to sustain it. Right. So I guess the next part of pricing is, is finding the starving crowd and you dissect this in the book as well. So the starving crowd being a crowd that, you know, the hot dog stand outside of the baseball uh, stadium at midnight or whatever, and people yeah. are, are really, really hungry and there's no other food. And it seems like you kind of almost naturally kind of dropped into a starving crowd. And this is just from what I know from you of the book. I could be completely wrong about that. But I, I see a lot of entrepreneurs that, that, that struggle finding a starving crowd. Or here's the other thing. They kind of get their ego or their concept of themselves wrapped up in a non-starving crowd. And they continue to build a business that's, that is for a non-starving crowd and maybe a crowd that's really you know, fat and, and hungry, they don't even need your service, right? Yeah. So let's hone in, let's talk about how people can find a, a more starving crowd. So four components, um, which are in the book is one is that, I, if, like, what are the components of this, right? Of a starving crowd? And it's not always gonna be perfect, but I, I at the very least wanna make sure that I'm not in a dying market, right? Mm -hmm. So the first is, is it a growing market? Is this market either growing at the pace of the marketplace or growing faster, right? If it's growing faster, that's plus, right? If it's just growing the same, then I just consider that a neutral point. And if it's shrinking, then that's something that I'm going to say is a red flag and I might not want to be a part of it. So an example of a shrinking industry would be newspapers, right? right? Which I an example in the book and a friend of mine had that, had that business. Um, an example of a growing market might be cannabis, right? It's growing mm -hmm. faster than the marketplace because it's, it's meeting the demand, right? And you use and so, the nine, 9% nine real quick, 9% rule as whether it's growing or dying. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So 9% what the stock market returns on a, a regular, on average, on a regular basis. And so, yeah. And so if you're not making more than 9% a year, you're not growing, you're dying. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Got exactly. Yeah. And so that's the, that's the growing component. Um, the second is, do they have buying power? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so the difference is, let's say I was a relationship coach. And I use the example in the book. It's like, if I were a relationship coach, I would rather deal with, uh, you know, finding your second half of life love with old timers than, uh, uh, well, not Alzheimer's for old timers. Um, <laughs> then, uh, then like find a hookup mate in college because that, that marketplace has more purchasing power, even though the problem is the same. So I'd rather deal with that. This year. Um, the third component is, are they easy to find? And this one's important, um, because this is more of a tactical example, but like, if you can't find your market or they are just more difficult to find, um, they don't have associations, they don't have lists. Now, nowadays with the internet, it just, usually it just takes a little bit of ingenuity. And sometimes that can be a competitive advantage. If you find something that might be a little bit harder to find, but you find a way to contact those people, then that can be, that, that can be like secret sauce for you. Mm -hmm. um, but I wanna make sure that I have a way that I can easily target them. Um, and ideally uh, a way to target them that is cost effective, right? And so um, I was trying to show the, show the visual in this puppy um, for, for, our, uh, for our growing marketplace. Maybe I can find it. It's my book. I should probably know where it is. Um, here it is. So, for everyone who's watching. So you've got, um, and I'll get to this one last, but you've got the pain, you've got the purchasing power, you're easy to target and that they're growing, right? And so I'm doing these in reverse order, but pain is the, is the last, but also maybe the most important one, which is I don't want them to be aroused by what I'm saying. I want them to be ravenous um, for the thing that I'm selling, right? Mm -hmm. And that comes down to timing. So right now, if you were to ask, 
is the gym owner market um, a starving market? I would say maybe in that they have pain, but overall, I think they tend to be jaded by the fact that like a hundred other gym launch copies have come in um, to the marketplace, not delivering on the promising, but still trying to keep our premium pricing. Um, and so I think timing matters, right? Timing matters a lot when it comes to these things. And I think we also, um, to a large degree, had a lot of our success because the timing was good. Mm-hmm. Um, and as much as people want to be like, oh, it's all our entrepreneurial prowess. I think part of it was timing. I think there was a lot of things that, you know, Facebook ads were cheap. Uh, ClickFunnels had just started. Um, you know what I mean? Like there was there was no one really doing what we were doing at that time. And so right. a lot of those things, Lollapalooza together to create a really outsized outcome. Yeah. But from a marketplace standpoint, if everyone here is looking at their niche that they're trying to find, um, which is probably the next point in the, in the pricing is that we want to find a niche. And um, if you want, I can go through that pricing example because I think it's powerful. I'd love to, yeah. So right now I use weight loss a lot, partially because I come from that background, but also because everyone understands it. Um, if I were selling a generic weight, actually, no, that's not the example I use in the book. I'll use, I'll use a weight loss example, do something different. So if I had a generic weight loss product, right, I might be able to sell that product for like $19. If I had an ebook on weight loss, right? Mm-hmm. That would be just mass market, just weight loss, right? There's nothing crazy about it. If I were to niche down and say, um, I want to do weight loss for women, then it might be something that it's only for women that I might be able to charge maybe $99 for that same thing, right? If I were to say, I want to work with uh, women who are uh, nurses or shift workers mm-hmm. um, and help them lose weight, and this diet plan is specifically for that type of woman, then it might be a $500 thing, right? Um, and then if I said, I'm work- working with uh, shift working nurses, um, between the ages of 35 and 55 um, in, you know, highly urban areas or something, you know, whatever, um, then the pricing power of that thing might be a $2,000 price for the same thing. And ultimately the ebook is going to say, stop eating shit and move. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, is that the prospect will perceive that the solution is far more tailored to them. And the messaging can so clearly articulate their pain in a way that they feel understood. And if we can talk in that way, then they want a very real way get more convicted that the product is going to work for them. And then in a very real way, we'll get and receive more value from the product because they perceived it as being tailored to them. And so we can take the same product, a weight loss ebook, and make it 200 times the price or whatever, 100 times as, ex- as expensive as it was before, simply by niching down and, and selecting a market that we believe. Now, in that example, that I would say that's an easy one to find. They have purchasing power because they would be nurses. So they probably, you know, they're making 70 to $110,000 a year. Mm-hmm. Um, they're in pain because they're overweight, right? And they and they have a lot of other pains of like their, their time and their scheduling and all the other pains I would try and hit on. Um, and they're easy to target, right? And so I, they would check all the boxes. I, I'm sorry, they might not be growing, but I would say they're growing at the pace of the market. I don't know if maybe, maybe nurses are in a lot of demand right now with COVID. So who knows? That might, they might, for right now, it might actually be a growing market. Um, but that would be the idea is like, okay, if I'm looking at this and I'm currently selling weight loss or selling it to everyone, how can I sell it to one person? Um, and how do I pick that person well? And a lot of times I feel like entrepreneur, entrepreneurship is very counterintuitive, which is why a lot of people don't succeed at it. It's like you have to give more in order to get more. It's backwards. Right. Yeah, people think it's all about asking. It's all about giving, right? Um, you have to say who you're not serving in order to find who you are going to serve. Right. And so strategies about saying what we're not going to do rather than what we are going to do. And so there's lots of lessons like that that are belief shifts that I think are important in the entrepreneurial journey. And the first one begins with who we're going to sell our thing to. Yes, that makes sense. Okay, we can dissect this more. But there's one story that I, I, I think in the book you shared really well 
how people created Grand Slam offers. And it's when you went to Arnold Schwarzenegger's house, uh, mm-hmm. I believe for the first time, and you were there for his charity event, which you're now, I think you're a board member of his charity, After School All-Stars. And you went and you don't, I think you donated a million dollars or something, and you were just rubbing shoulders with all these really impressive people. What were some of the things that they were doing? I think they ended up raising $5 million at that auction or yeah. something like that. What were some of the things that they were doing that the entrepreneurs out there can th- can use to get these really high prices for a product that they perceive is really worth it and and apply it to our own businesses? So I'll add a, a little bit of color to this that I, I – because whenever you write a book, there's always like, oh, I could have said this here. I could have added this. And so <laughs> right. that, yeah, that they did um, that I would, I would add into an updated version, which I'll probably do later in the book. Um, is that philanthropy in of itself is something that can help you command high premiums or you'll get a, you'll have more people will buy things if they get, because what happens is in a real way, they're getting more value because they're getting value from the product and they're getting the value from feeling good about donating to something. And so there's two types of of value that they're getting. And with philanthropy, the more you give, the more you get that value in terms of how much you gave. Now I'll tell you this, it's not proportional, (laughs) but, um, but anyways, uh, they had a philanthropic edge, which made everything, everyone always feel good. And they're in the right mood. There's, and the biggest one, this is what I kind of beginning, begin the whole, I, I use that story as the entrance to the chapter of enhancing the offer is that scarcity and urgency are two of the most powerful forces. Scarcity, in my opinion, being almost the most powerful, um, of forces that, that produce pricing. Right. And so, um, the story that I tell is, uh, I was there, they introduced me to a guy named George. He was one of the biggest donors, um, besides us. And, um, they had told, or George was in the high, he was a luxury good seller. So he was selling million dollar, $2 million watches or timepieces as they call them. Um, and he was a master of understanding scarcity and pricing. And so he understood that there was more demand this year for attending the charity event. And I think in the year prior, they had sold, um, I want to say, I can't remember what it was, but it was let, you know, a few more tickets than they sold that year, uh, but for $10,000. And so what he told them to do was with more demand to cut the supply. He said, so whenever demand goes up, he said, you cut supply. And so by doing that, they were able to two and a half X the price that they charged for the tickets and they still sold out even faster. And by doing that, I just remember, I try and display it in the story in the book, but like, I remember how much it, like it impacted me. Cause I was like, man, like, and this guy has made zillions of dollars understanding this one concept. And I try and give an example, which is like, if I were to say right now, hey, um, I'm going to do a workshop, right, for, for 10 grand for five people, I could probably have that filled in 60 seconds, right, if I made a post, right, because um, I don't do that. Um, but at the same time, if I were to say, I will take one person for as much as I, you know, as they were willing to pay me for a day, um, I've had people offer me 250000 for a day. Um, and so I would actually have made five times, or sorry, 25 times the money or five times the money, excuse me, um, by just selling that one person and still have the four other people who might've originally purchased for $10,000 wanting to buy again later. And as long as the first person gets an exceptional experience, even more people would find out about it. And the next time I might sell two tickets, right? And so the idea is how can we always stay ahead of our supply demand curve so that we always have fewer spaces than is demanded of us. And so what happens for most entrepreneurs is that they have an itty bitty, bitty, bitty amount of demand and they immediately, immediately go for the ask, right? Mm-hmm. The idea is the longer you can delay the ask, 
the more demand you can build up and then you just open up the door just a little bit and then close it. <laughs> just a little bit and then you close it, right? And by doing that, that is how you can have unbelievable pricing power. That's a that's a that's a service based perspective, obviously. Or if there's a one time or limited edition. But the thing is, is, is and, I, and I put the strategies in the book for for creating this kind of scarcity is that there are still ways. And this is probably the most tactical one that I can give everyone on here is that right now, um, if you have a client based business, and I were to say, I'm going to send you a thousand customers like you have tomorrow, mm-hmm. you would probably not be able to handle. Pick a number, but that, I'm just using that as an extreme example for most people. Very true. So most people probably have a certain amount that they could probably maximally handle and do a good job. And so the ethical way of showing and creating scarcity is just actually saying what your limit is. And so if you normally can handle, let's say five clients a week, then just saying that five clients a week is your limit and then actually enforcing that limit. And this is the thing that people fuck up and actually enforcing them or even limiting it to three and then increasing the price. So you have fewer people to service, you have less operational costs and more margin. Because again, the goal is not to sell the most people, but to make the most money. With that, right, we can then, after we sell the first person, we're like, we have two spots left for the week. And after we sell the second person, we're like, this is the last spot, I got a handful more calls. And you are being truthful. And so you put a genuine dem- uh, scarcity line. And here's the cool thing is that next week you can change it to four. Yeah. But if you just, as long as you ethically stick with the line that you draw, you can always say exactly the amount of spaces that you left, which is normally what you hit anyways. But it creates the perception of scarcity, which can can get more people to buy when they otherwise might not. Yeah. It, it's so difficult too. Like it's appealing. There's a carrot in front of the horse's mouth and you're like, oh, one more client and an extra $5,000, $10,000. I can handle it. As opposed to just say, no, this is where I'm going to limit myself and then scale yeah. that. But it's, it's difficult for people to do. I can put you on the waiting list for next week if you want. Yes. Yeah. That's a good way. To and then it. as soon as you text them next week, what do you think is going to happen? They're like, fuck yeah, I'm in. It's like, yeah, yeah we, we ran right. Or next yeah. month, whatever. I want to dive more into uh, the last part of the book, execution, but we're going to leave that for the end of the podcast. We've got some audience Q&A right now, so we're going to bring some of the guys in that want to ask you some questions. Aaron Nunez, hop on in, buddy. Turn on your video and your audio, and then you can say hello to Alex and go ahead and ask. Alex, hey, man. What's up? I've been a huge fan for a couple of years now. Read a bunch of stuff. I love your YouTube videos. Uh, I just wanted you to dive into if you can get into more specific in how you removed yourself from your from gym launch as a personal brand. I got a ton of questions around that. Like one, it looked like I I saw an ad. It looked like you basically brought in another guy to replace you as the face of the company. And what, why did you choose that in, instead of just like a, a, a company brand? And then not only that, what was it, what was it compensated? How did you take over? Like, how did you manage the research and development? I imagine Jim launches a lot of research and development. Like, how did you put that into the operations? And then not only that, like, where did the, like, I know you said profits went from like 16 million to 8 million. Like, where did that go? Did that go to like, is it decreased revenue or just your profit sharing it out? Or well, what did that look like? It's a good question. Um, so there was a lot of there. So I'll try and start at the top. Um, well, I'll start backwards. You know what? I'll do it in whatever order it comes to mind. So to answer the profit question, part of that was because we just got kicked in the nuts with COVID. So I think that the, I think the decrease would have been significantly less if we were not brick and mortar gyms during COVID for that year, right? So I think it's somewhat unfair to say that the team was somehow half as effective as they were otherwise. 
Um, but during that period of time, um, we still did do you know, all the, the replacements that I was referencing. The individual that you're talking about has been with us for five years and was a customer first. So he's been in our world for almost five or six years now, right? And so uh, he was a customer, did the experience, turned his gym around, sold his gym successfully, came on board as a sales guy, became a sales manager, then became general manager of the whole company. And so he's been getting groomed this whole time, right? Um, for this. And then at a certain point, I think the entrepreneurial journey in general is a relinquishing of, of control, right? And so a lot of it comes from the emotional side of the entrepreneurs that we have this desire to control things and have things in our way when you have to get over that, right? And it's hard. That's why most people don't do it. So that's hard. Uh, they always want to jump back in. It'd be so much easier if I just did it myself. And it's like, yeah, it would be, but you'd also continue to always do it yourself until someday you let someone else do it. Um, from a compensation perspective, uh, the executives in my company have phantom stock. Um, and so they get uh, a percentage of, uh, of stock every year, um, which is, you know, usually you generally, so I'm not going to share their compensation, but I'll say in general rule of thumb, um, it depends on the size of the company, obviously, but you can usually have like a, a, a half a percent or a 1% per year vesting uh, with a one-year cliff. What that means is that they don't get anything for the first year. And then after that first year, they'll get that first percent. And then every quarter thereafter, they'll get, you know, 0.25 or, or I'm just using fake numbers here, but that, that would be the idea. Um, and then after that, you cap that at like year three or year four. And then the idea is if they have 3% of the company after four years, because they have one year that they had to earn it. Um, then after that, that like the, the growth of the company itself is going to be where they're going to gain like their 3% would become more valuable if the company is twice as valuable, right? Um, and so that is, and obviously they had, they have, they have bonuses and they have, um, uh, and the bonuses we split between company performance and individual performance. So we try and split those 50-50. So I'm gonna, I'll, I'll give you round numbers um, just for illustration's sake. So let's say it's, uh, let's say the person is making uh, 200,000 a year, that's their targeted income, right? Uh, so $200,000 a year is what they're making, $100,000 a year might be base, 50K would be based on the company hitting company objectives. And then 50K would be based on them hitting their personal objectives that they have sole control over. So if the company does shitty, then, but they still hit all their stuff, they get half of what they could otherwise have achieved. On the flip side, if they do a terrible job, but then the company still crushes it, they still probably had some, if they're at a leadership level, they still probably had some contribution to do with that. And so then they would get the other 50, right? And so, but they'll have a base of, of, you know, whatever it is, which is about half of their comp. Now that's going to be dependent on the type of person. This is a conversation that you'd have with an executive. Some executives are more uh, risk averse and some are more entrepreneurial and want to have the higher upside, but potential for higher downside. Um, so it really depends on their appetite for risk. Uh, and that's more of an individual conversation and figuring out what they value. Um, of, a mentor of mine actually had an executive that he felt like you could never, um, incentivized with money. And then he finally had a long, like long walk on the beach with him. And he was like, I just want my kid's college to be paid for. And so he just paid for all the kid, the guy's college ki uh, kids. So like, I think it's the incentives is far more about finding out what the thing is um, that drives them more than a one cookie cutter approach. Um, but yeah. And then in terms of how we turn it from a personal brand um, into what I would consider now just a gym consulting company um, is one is that people try and do it way too fast, right? Like this was a like he'd already been with us for three years and then it took about two years from when we said, this is when we're going to start to now where we're completely out. Um, it took two years and it was like, okay, well, Alex is going to go from taking five calls a week to taking three calls a week. And then two months later, it's going to take two calls a week. And then another month is one call a week. And then it was, okay, well now I'm just taking calls for the higher level clients. And then from there, it's like, okay, I'm not taking, I'm doing every other call. Right. Or then it became, now I'm just doing the big release calls. And then it was, okay, now I'm not on any client facing stuff, but I'm still in the portal. I'm still running the ads, not me running the ads, but I'm in charge of the marketing component of it. It's like, okay, now we have 
Someone else is going to be in charge of the marketing equipment and I'll just film ads four hours once a month. Right. I'm just telling you, these are the transitions that we went through. Um, and then it went from me not filming the ads at all, which is where we are now, um, to finding someone else who can film those ads. But then also what I, what I call creating the GL marketing machine. And so for us, there are, there's a lot of material that is consistently generated by our community, which is good marketing material. And so we have onboarding calls, we have testimony, you know, we have coaching calls, we have success calls that are recorded every single day. Um, that we can, we can slice and dice those things and they can tag them as like, hey, this is a good call. And the marketing team can come in, slice off the piece and then make that into an ad. And all of that is consistently being generated without any effort. And it's just about capturing and tagging it, which is much easier. And so by doing that, we're able, you've probably seen we have tons of testimonials that we've run for years, right? We've run new testimonials every month and it's because we have fresh testimonials to run. And so that always works um, because at the end of the day, like the best kind of proof is, is social proof of other people, just like the, the avatar. And so um, that is that is ultimately like kind of like the process that we went through. And then and then once we were completely internal facing, it was OK. Um, now, Layla and I only talk to the two, you know, the three executives um, in the company and we meet with them uh, twice. You know, I meet with one of them for 30 minutes and then we meet with all of them for 90 minutes once a week. And that's what it is now. Cool. We have to bring in another question here, Aaron. If you have some more, we'll, we'll circle back to you if we have some time. Hopefully, so. <laughs> this this very thorough man. Okay, Davis, you want to hop in? Davis Nguyen. Yeah, absolutely. Alex, appreciate you coming on. Love the book as well as love your podcast. That's why my gym routine is listening to like three episodes and continue on with that. So funny thing, I'll tell you management consulting, at least I think it's cool just because our business actually helps people become management consultants. We work with Vanderbilt as one of our places where... So my question for you is that I'm really looking forward to volume two where you talk about pricing models. But for a service like mine, which is placing students into management consulting roles, how would you think about the pricing on that one? So if I were placing, so are you, so you, you take, okay, so let me, let me make sure I understand it properly. So you go to elite schools, you look for the people who didn't get jobs and say, hey, there's these lucrative, you know, career path here. We've connected with Bain, McKinsey, you know, whoever you guys already have your, um, your consulting relationship with, and then you put them through what I would consider some sort of training that makes them more valuable than they currently are. And then those companies are happy because you know that you've, you've done a lot of the onboarding process for them. So their cost of bringing them up to speed is probably a lot less. And so they can start generating revenue from those people faster. And they're a little bit more vetted um, because you've you know taken them through whatever process you're taking them through. Am I understanding that correctly? At a high level, yes. The only two things is that even for McKinsey, Bain, Boss Consulting Group, and so forth, they'll still need to go through the interview process and getting the interview. So what we do is we have a team of coaches who will help them polish their resumes, help them with the interview, and then they hopefully pass the interview, which we've gotten a good job with so far. So, so let me ask you more about that. So is it, are, are, are you selling them basically how to increase the likelihood that they get in, into, those, into those businesses? Is that more what it is? Yes, that's more of that. Okay, got it. No, it's, it's good for me to understand. I wasn't sure if it was being sold as uh, we're finding the people who don't get in and then and then kind of selling it as an opportunity or it's like this is more of an improvement offer of what you're currently doing and make it more likely. It's just, it's an important distinction. Um, okay, so this is actually really similar to test prep, which I um, almost started instead of gyms because I love the test prep business. Unbelievable margins. But anyways, um, so how do you position the offer there? So the idea is I would I would... I would have some sort of guarantee around the number of interviews that they'll get um, if I can. And you could make it a, a conditional base guarantee, which is like, um, or we'll keep working with you until you get at least three interviews. So that means that when you sign up, you know that you're going to get this. 
um, no matter what, whether it takes six months or it takes, you know, six years. Now, obviously at a certain point, they're going to lose interest because they're not good enough. Um, but it still makes, it still has some element of decreasing risk. Now that would be a conditional guarantee. You can also stack that with a with an unconditional guarantee of, um, if you don't believe the value of our service in the first 30 days, we'll give you all the money back anyways. Right. And so then from a pricing perspective, the question is, are you selling to students or are you selling to students' parents? We're selling to students, but obviously most of them will go to their parents. Right. Okay, cool. So um, there's a, I mean, there's a zillion different pricing models you can do with job placements. So, I mean, you can do a percentage of their future income. You can, I mean, there's lots of things you can do. Um, I mean, that's, that, that you, that's limited only by your creativity. Um, but I would probably have some sort of combination of front end and back end. So front end engagement to cover my fees and acquisition costs, and then probably all my profit will be on the back end. Yeah, that's what we currently have right now. And I'm thinking about switching it, which is we collect one third up front. So you're committed and two thirds once you get the offer. But after reading your book this weekend, I was talking about the idea of, huh, what if we do the reverse, which is we collect everything up front. But if you don't get it after certain methods and so forth, here's a refund. Yeah, I mean, you could do that, too. Like these are these are the beautiful thing about testing these things. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, I mean, that's the like we just test stuff. And I, I tend to try and make the offer so good i'm scared and that's usually when i know it's right <laughs> i love that i'm gonna quote that that helpful that's super helpful as in thanks chris cool good. thanks davis uh victoria is up next victoria hop on in hey alex really pleasure talking to you big fan girl read all your books watch your youtubes as my morning inspiration every morning pretty much <laughs> Anyways, um, I have a question regarding um, when you come into the companies, because through your acquisition.com uh, company, you, you basically buy a stock in the company and then you come in and scale them. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering when you come into the company, where do you start the transformation process? Do you start in the product, in the marketing, in hiring the proper team? Like, how do you go about that? It depends entirely on the business. So I've, I'll give you, I've, I've got two companies that one company I already have and one company that I'll probably um, take equity in the next few months that are similar. They're in the same space. One of them is exceptionally good at um, acquisition and not very good at products and increasing LTV. The other one is really good and has grown almost entirely off word of mouth, but is really not good at acquisition. So it just depends on kind of the point that I was making at Chris earlier is like, it depends on where the constraint is in the business. And so we just try and focus on what is the one constraint? What is the thing that is limiting the growth of this business? And I think properly identifying that is where a lot of the expertise comes in, because when you're on the inside of the business, you have a hard time because you have so many things that are going on and so many things that you think aren't good because, because the reality is a lot of things aren't good. Right. I mean, there are a lot of things are not perfect, but the question is, which of those things that is imperfect is the thing that is limiting the business. And so which is the, which is the greatest fire that we have to put out first? And then we, we put them out in reverse order. Um, some some fires are more silent and some are more obvious. So like um, and a lot of times it's also like just differentiating between symptoms and causes. Right. So, for example, a business not, might not be growing as fast as they want it to grow. And they're like, well, I'm not getting a lot of customers. And it might be a product issue. And so that's where kind of judgment and discernment on, on behalf of like our experience and having seen a lot of different businesses and whatnot comes into play. It's like, do we think this is a product issue or is this a marketing issue, right? Or is this a team problem, like you said? Um, so it really kind of depends. Or is it a model issue? Like there, uh, the first business I took on um, uh, was a photography company. And uh, the guy was like, I have a working photography business. They were doing 1.6 million a year out of just a single facility. It was 2,000 per feet. I was like, this is awesome. And he'd taken it from 300,000 to 1.6 million because of the gym launch book. Uh, he just executed everything in the gym launch book in his photography business, which I thought was funny. Um, but anyways, uh, he had started his parallel business and he was doing 
I think $500,000 a year. And mind you, for everyone who's on here, we don't take anyone at that size anymore. It's like everything's 5 million and up, but just let me continue the story. And so um, it was, it was apparent that he was very good at the business, but the model that he had created was some sort of like semi-hybrid agency thing, which like everyone tries to do and is really commoditized and generally shitty. And I had no desire to be a part of it. And so um, we reconfigured the entire model. And now 14 months later, it's doing 200,000 a week. Um, so they're doing 10 million. So they just cracked 10 million. And so um, that was one where the team was right. The marketing was great. The product was great. They just had, they were just monetizing completely wrong. And so we just had to restructure the model. I have to change anything besides just here's, here's how we're going to do money now, rather than changing anything of the actual doingness of the business. And so it really depends on the business. Like it really depends. And I think that's where, I mean, that's candidly where a lot of the value that we, we can provide comes in because we know where the bottleneck is and we can just deblock it and then move forward, which is why the growth is so fast. in some of the companies is because like, um, the, like one of the companies I think will do 35 million this year, they'll do 85 next year. Um, that's my guess, just that one company alone. Um, and it's because like, they just had this one thing that they didn't know how to do. Um, and we know how to do it really well, which is build a massive skills sales team. And so we're just installing a massive sales team, which will allow them to four or five X their prices um, and probably double or triple their conversion on the front end because they don't need to go to a purchase. They can go to a call, which will double or triple. So I'll triple the volume and triple the price. Amazing. Do you have any like shortcut checklist that you go like, this is good. This is good. This is not good. Let's start here. <laughs> I think if I think of them in sequence, um, so it's more like, let's start at the top of the funnel. So how are people finding out about us? So it's really like, I just walk through the customer journey and try and figure out where the whole journey is. Yeah. Not enough people are finding out about this, you know, why? And the, or is it, okay, this is not good enough. And when people do find out about it, they don't want to, they don't want to buy it. And so you actually have, you have a negative marketing campaign that's counteracting your positive marketing campaign. That makes sense. Cool. Okay. Thank you. I have more questions if there's time. Okay. Well, we'll let's Greg hop in Victoria and circle back if we have some more time. Greg, go ahead, buddy. Hi, Alex. My name is Greg Budis. Nice to see everybody. Um, thanks a lot, Chris. Uh, my name is Greg. I own a jewelry a company called the Jewelry Republic, which is my B2C brand. And I have, my, I have a factory here in Thailand, which is where I'm calling in from. Um, so my question is regarding uh, philanthropy and and working in the, in the charity space. I do run a, a profitable business, but I want to I want to ask your thoughts from what you said earlier with working and regularly folk giving proceeds to a particular, um, you know, maybe a nonprofit so that I'm their partner and we work together. And, and, and obviously when I write them a check or give them some finances in a very loud and proud manner, is it, is, do you have any pro tips or any experience um, with growing your business with a purpose? I'd say acquisition.com is the first company that I've grown with a purpose. Besides making money. Okay. Can, let me, let me reverse that real quick. So I think there, Patrick Lencioni has a book called um, the advantage, which is really good. I highly recommend it. And uh, in the book, he talks about, there are six main reasons that you can start a business. Um, and I'll try and remember all of them right now off the yeah. top of my head. But one of them, for example, is like, I want to better the community. So you might be somebody who's like, I'm starting an insurance business, but it's because I want to, I want to, I want to help the Latino community in this area. Right. And I have that my insurance practice. Mm -hmm. um, you can have that same insurance practice and be like, I want my employees to all become wealthy. Right. That's something that I care a lot about. 
So that might be the reason that the company exists. It might be that you are passionate about insurance in general and believe because you had some traumatic experience and you broke your neck and insurance saved your life or whatever. Um, and so you believe that everyone should have insurance. And that's the reason that you start the insurance mm. company. Um, there's um, uh, like there's like two or three more, but that's, that's and one of them is wealth, right? Like you actually just want to make money, um, which is another reason. Like a lot of venture mm. capital firms, legal firms tend to be kind of more in that. Sure. In that. And I think what's, what's important is, um, and so like the companies that I've had have had a purpose, um, but that, that in some way, all, in my opinion, all capitalistic businesses must have a purpose if they're going to grow. Otherwise, sure. satisfy your immediate needs for financial security, which I'm assuming you have already satisfied if you're in the space that you are, um, then they're all in a way, they're philanthropic. If that, like, I know that sounds weird, but like, I think in some ways, a lot of capitalistic businesses have become big. Um, are that way because most employees are not motivated by money. They want to make sure that they're making a difference as well. Um, but you can be uh, more overt about it. Um, I think it should be overt in the messaging regardless. But if you have a philanthropic um, edge to it, which is kind of what I'm doing with acquisition.com, but not as a, as a donating um, from a money directly, but more so I'm donating all the stuff that I have for free, which is kind of the point why I'm doing these you know podcasts like this. Um, is because that's the cause that I'm that I'm I'm passionate about, and so I think that mm. as long as the messaging across the entire company aligns with everything has to align with that why, then I think mm. everything will op- operate in alignment. You'll recruit the better people, and then ultimately, like that's the that's the stuff that all the marketing community doesn't want to talk about. But it's also the reason that none of them are big um, mm. is that they don't understand culture, they don't understand motivating people, they don't understand alignment, um, and they don't. And, and like the only way to build a big enterprise is people, right? Which I'm sure you, you already know. Sure. And, so, and so having that philanthropic alignment actually gives you in some ways a lot of competitive advantage in my opinion. Well, that, that's really amazing input. And thanks, thanks a lot. I mean, with my, my community is all military. I'm a former military guy and I, I wanna be the veteran. I am the veteran's jeweler and I wanna be able to obviously support them, serve them, but we've got a lot of veteran problems. So I want to take a chunk of what we make profit wise and give to them, but just in sort of a, a way that says, hey, I'm just not, you know, buying Lambos, which I'm not against either. But I also want to make sure my brothers and sisters out there, you know, they yep. can better their by something that I can provide. And um, it sounds like that you've cracked. That's a perfect cause, right? And so that's actually that's one of the ones that I missed, which was the, you're, you're, you're either about the industry or about the avatar. So you might not be like like the the point of the jewelry business might not be jewelry. The point of the business is to help veterans and yeah. you do that through the vehicle of jewelry, but the end result is that you're making veterans lives better. Right. And so that would be the fifth one of the, of the different reasons that you can start a business. Like it's the avatar, it's the industry. Um, it's the community, it's the, um, your employees, uh, it's wealth, um, or it's a general cause. Right. And so yours is that you love the avatar, which is awesome. And so Thanks. I think that, I think that your perspective on it is dead on. Um, and I would just align the, uh, the messaging component. Cause you, I mean, it seems like you already have the messaging pretty much down. Um, because that, I mean, that is the message like we're, and it, it becomes more and more and more about them. Unless it's, it's here. Less. It's just, there. Okay, it's, yeah. it's, but I think what you just said right now to me is very clear. And so it's like, mm-hmm. we are veterans, this is how we do it. Um, and this is why, you know, this is why we do it. And then the vehicle of how we do it is through, is through the, um, if you've watched Simon Sinek's uh, Start With Why, he has a really good talk on it. And I think it might actually be really useful for you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Greg. Uh, Victoria has one more question. and We'll start to wrap things up. Yeah. 
Thank you. Alex, I want to, I want to ask a question regarding selling by phone. So in all of your books, you refer to selling as being a very valuable skill, and I agree. But I would like to know your perspective on what do you think is that threshold in dollar amounts that it's worth actually putting together a sales team and starting selling by phone rather than just doing your typical you know, email selling by email? And what is the dollar amount? Depends on the space. Depends so, on? Depends on the space. So if I'm selling weight loss, the ticket would be lower than if I'm selling investment opportunities. Right. So I'm sp specifically thinking about language learning space. I'm helping Ray with LiveLingua. We want to okay. move from just selling, you know, by hour to offering a program and whether it's worth it or not to go on a phone for, let's say, $300. Yeah, I think offering a program is way better because you're selling the outcome. No one wants, because think about this. Think, think about how crazy selling by hour is. The more hours you sell, the more time and effort I have to use, which means the more I have to buy, the less likely I want to buy it. Exactly. Think how crazy that is, right? Like the longer hours you sell, the longer it's going to take me, which means my time delay increases with my effort and sacrifice. So the so literally you have two value components that are counteracting your pricing. Right. Exactly. So I would yeah. So I think having a defined end program um, with being able to pass a basic language test that you can put together, right, could be the guarantee, which is that you'll pass our level one test that you can control, right? Um and you can do that in, 12, I mean, I don't know the, the time duration because you know better than me. 12 weeks, <clears throat> three months. 12 week. Yeah, 12 weeks or six months or whatever it is. And then you can sell that. And then the outcome is I pay this money and then I will be able to pass this test, which to me is valuable, right? Or it might be like vacation level. So you could have little levels of like, you know, if, I mean, you know this better than me, but I'm just saying like, I would probably think like I have a vacation level, which means I can go to that country and not get killed, right? And know where the bathroom is and know how to like order at a restaurant, right? And so that's what you can pass and it takes 12 weeks. So if you're going to buy this trip and then you can anchor around the price of a vacation, right? So if you might have a $5,000 vacation, it's like, it'll double the value of your vacation if you know what to order and how to get around and you'll have a way better experience. And like, why would you not, why would you spend an extra $1,000 a night or an extra $200 a night on a better hotel? But the whole time you're there, you hate the experience because you can't communicate with anyone and you can't really soak in the culture because you don't understand what's going on, right? And so then I would probably try and anchor around that. So in terms of price point, um, I'd probably say for your space, I mean, this is me just pulling it out of thin air, like with no, no background data, but probably a few thousand bucks, probably two grand, three grand is probably the minimum I would, I would charge for getting into that, in that range. And it depends again on the fulfillment. Like if I had, if I, if I had a one-on-one -on -one person who was helping me out, or is it, am I following a curriculum and then someone checks in with me for the verbal, you know, 20 minutes a week. So it kind of depends on, I don't know how your, your thing is structured. So there would be some business components from a cost standpoint that would come into play there. But I, for, for a business like that, I would make sure that I was probably running 95% um, net margins or higher, or sorry, gross margins or higher. So if it cost me, just for, for perspective, so let's say it was 20 minutes uh, weekly, right? And it cost me, whatever, I don't know, 50 bucks an hour. So I know that I, that guy can do three per hour, right? So it'd be um, uh, 16, 17 bucks, right? So $17 is what it cost me to get the 20 minutes and they're gonna get 12 of those. So let's just round up and say 20 bucks times 20. So, uh, sorry, times 12. So $20 times 12 weeks is $240. So that's going to be your hard cost um, of fulfillment, right? And so if I want to run, uh, you know, 95% gross margin, it means I have to be 20 times as expensive as that. So 20 times times, so it'd be got to be a $4,800 product if that were the fulfillment. Yeah, that makes sense. I actually calculated all the net margins based on your formulas that you provide them. Yeah. But you're, you're not really in the service business, or at least if I wouldn't make it, I would try not to be in the service business. I would try and be in a, an assisted 
assisted media learning business, which is you get a lot more leverage, a lot more margin. Yeah, exactly. We're in a, it's exactly that. It's one-on-one coaching with all the assisted materials and everything else. Cool. And I mean, mind you, me, me saying that price is like, I'm thinking that way, but at the end of the day, the value, the price you're going to charge is based on the value the market will perceive. So like, I'm saying that that would be my minimum that I would want, or I'd have to reconfigure my, you know, maybe 90% might be the lowest I would drop for a model like that. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Victoria. Alex, we'll start wrapping up here. Um, one thing I want to point out is the the last part of your book where you talk about execution and you tell this really great story um, about when you got your first $100,000 in your personal bank account. Yeah. And I think that's a pivotal moment, a benchmark moment for a lot of people, uh, a lot of entrepreneurs when they get there because we may have it in a business account. We may make 100K in rev and those are all, you know, benchmark moments as well. But when it hits your bank account and it's yours tax, you know, taxes are over with and everything, it feels really good. And it's easy to get wrapped up and motivated by these numbers, 28 million, 128 million, 1.2 million a month profit. You know, people are like, yeah, I'm going to be there next week. And, but sometimes we lose focus on it. It's like, okay, the first step for a lot of entrepreneurs is just getting that first hundred K in your bank account under your name. And so what, can you tell a little bit about that story, what it was like for you when that happened and how everything shifted? Yeah. So, um, for everyone, because everyone sees overnight successes, right? Um, I had now at that point been in business for four or five years, like for context for everyone. So it seems like, I, you know, Alex has everything together. But I mean, it took me like four years to get there. And at that point, I'd already done multiple millions in revenue um, and per year with the gyms. But because I kept always wanting to reinvest stuff. And so the most valuable lesson that I got from losing everything twice <laughs> um, was was that a lot of times we tell ourselves this illusion that we're going to pay ourselves later, right? Yeah. And the companies that I have had that have been the most successful, and this is my experience, and there's probably other entrepreneurs who might, who might counteract this who are maybe far wealthier than I am, but this is my experience as a small business owner who's able to scale, is that if the business pays you and you, and you go in with the intention of the business paying you, you'll, you'll be able to last a lot longer mm-hmm. <laughs> because... Because you'll be able, it's it's much easier to deal with the many the many fires and pains that come with running a business when you're getting a paycheck every month, and so um, if a business is not writing me a paycheck every month, then there is a problem, and a lot of us like to just think, oh no, I'm reinvesting my business, but you're not reinvesting in your business, you're just not making any profit. Right. I think that's a much more important thing, but because we want to save our egos and we want to posture and most important, we're just lying to ourselves that we're, fe- we want to feel more successful because we want to feel successful because we feel so shitty all the time about <laughs> running the business. So it's like at the very least, I can at least tell people I'm successful. So I feel better. Right. Yeah. But it's still not confronting the brutal facts of reality, which is if you're not making a profit, there is a problem. And so for me, that last story in the book was a culmination of years of learning from failures of always selling, not caring about the margins much, just caring about growth, wanting to quote reinvest and put more money into new equipment and new locations and new leases and new build outs and all that kind of stuff. When I would have been much better served in my opinion, if I had just started, if I had thought, how can I take this one location that I had and then juice the crap out of it so that it just pumps out profits for me every single month, rather than thinking like, Oh, I'm going to do twice, you know, I'm going to do two of them or three of them or four of them or whatever. And so um, for me, it was a pivotal moment because uh, it, it finally came true. I finally felt like I had some money 
Um, and for me, Layla and I were living on less than $30,000 a year. So for me, that was like three and a half years of, of living expenses. Mm-hmm. And so I knew that I was going to be okay. And I think that most of us have to get to that level. Honestly, like, I don't want to say as fast as you can, because if you think that way, it's, it's going to take longer. <laughs> um, yeah. But I can say that getting there, I was able to get my first level of what I would consider security in place, which is just like food and shelter. Um, I felt like I was like, okay. And I'm somebody who needs, I personally have a need for lots of safety net. I'm actually fairly risk averse when it comes to the money that I have. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like to know my wealth, my expense, my income to expense ratio being very, very favorable. Like Layla and I lived on less than 1% of what we made for the first two years. Wow. Um, yeah, we lived on nothing. We lived on like, I think a hundred and something thousand a year, but we were making 17 million. So like we really didn't live on much compared to what we were making. Right. Um, and I think that a lot of people get, they really want to posture like so desperately want the status. Um, and I think that if you can shift the status, at least to shifting it towards your net worth, that's useful, um, for most people. And then if you can get your spouse on board and get, play the game of how little can we live on. And if you can make it a fun game where you win by living on almost nothing, then you, you inherently decrease the stress in your life because you need so little. Right. And then by doing that, you also have less risk because when you make decisions, you're like, well, we can live on a thousand bucks. We know how to do that. Right. And so it's always in your back pocket. Whereas a lot of people do the reverse of that. They overspend their income. They, they match their living expenses to the best month that they've ever had, which was a launch month or something, you know, yeah. and then the rest of the time they're always stressed and it was hundred percent self-induced. And so I think if we can avoid that, then more people will create the personal wealth and then buy, you know, subsequently the emotional freedom that they're looking for. Incredible. What a way to end the podcast, man. Just a couple things, Alex. Is there any way that we or the listeners out there can help and support you? And then where we can reach you at, where we can find you online? Yeah. Um, I'll give you a a, a medium-sized answer. Uh, So uh, YouTube, you can go to my YouTube channel. If you like that, it's all free, obviously. Um, So you can go check that out. Uh, If you like listening, there's a podcast called The Game. If you search my name, it'll probably come up. Um, and, uh, I have the book that I just, uh, released that, um, that Chris was referencing. Uh, I mean, in the first, it, it's selling a thousand copies a day right now, nice. um, which is pretty crazy with no ads and no funnels and no upsells. So I think that most people seem to be liking it and telling people about it, um, which is cool. And I think part of that is because of where the book came from, um, which is kind of alluding to the very beginning of this conversation, which is, this is the first business in my opinion that I've created, um, from a different place. Um, right. you know, we we've made this because. The goal was how can I help as many entrepreneurs as I possibly can? Um, and so the idea was kind of counter what I'm saying in the book, but the the goal is different in this. In this. So the book uh, is 99 cents. It comes with the course. It comes with the downloads. It comes with the checklists. And I'll create a new book. I have book two and three are already done, uh, but I can't release them because I just released this book like five minutes ago. So I'll release them in time. Um, <clears throat> but they'll each come with courses that go with them. Um, and that's just because I believe that the education system as a whole has failed all of us. And so I think that as as the education system is increasingly fragmented, um, technology democratizes consumption and consolidates production, which means if you're the best in the world, you get to do it for everyone. And so my goal is to help as many entrepreneurs as I can, um, independent of what country they live in, what, if, whether they have no money, whatever it is. And then hopefully, you know, ha- help some really cool, amazing businesses get started. And then once they pass, you know, five or 10 million bucks a year, they can reach out and we'd love to help them get to the next level. Um, and even if they don't, I'd love to die and just know that we help a lot of people for free. And I don't think I'll regret that when I'm, uh, when I'm 80. Yeah. 
Alex, thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing all your tips and tricks and wisdom with us. And I think I speak for everybody for helping answer some great questions that the listeners came up with and that we came from that came out of reading your book. Man, yeah, so we'll keep you in contact. Listeners, we'll put the links in the show notes. Again, Alex, thank you so much. Listeners, we want to thank you for tuning in once again, and we'll see you all on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. Hey, listeners, thanks for joining us. And once again, we wanted to remind you about our adventures and trips for entrepreneurs in our private community. If you enjoy luxury trips to the Caribbean, going on bucket list adventures around the world, or just traveling to connect with other established entrepreneurs, then be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to stay connected at thebusinessmethod.com. That's thebusinessmethod.com. Thanks for joining the show today, and we'll see you on the next episode.